Well, good morning, church. I hope you, thank you, I hope you had a uh, great Thanksgiving. Um, I know we did at my house over in Atlanta. Uh, like Brian said, my name is Austin Baker. I am on staff at Johnson Ferry Baptist Church over in Marietta, Georgia. I've been, about, I've been there about seven years. Uh, my wife, Christine, is with me here as well. Wave, be proud. All right, yeah. Um, this is my family right here. So they give you a little picture. So myself, Christine, Riley on the left is turns two on Wednesday. Ellie on the right was our COVID baby, born in April at home. It's another story for another day. Um, but uh, man, two under two, at least for three more days, is no joke. So um, this is our first, last night was our first night away since Ellie's being born, and we slept, I think, last night. Like, what do you do in Longview? We slept. Um, you know, we got some food, went to bed. So it was awesome. It was great. I feel great. Um, so we're going to be looking today uh, at, at a small little book in the Old Testament, Haggai, Haggai, the prophet Haggai. If you go to Matthew in the New Testament, take a left a few pages, you'll hit Haggai, the prophet Haggai, kind of wrapping up this mission sermon series you all have been working through um, the last few weeks, an odd place to go for a mission sermon, but one that I think will resonate with us, I pray by God's grace. So Haggai. Chapter 2, it's in between the two Z minor prophets, Zephaniah and Zechariah. It's kind of tucked in there, like an Oreo. Haggai, chapter 2, we're going to be um, really focusing in on verses 1 through 9. So that's what we're going to read together. So if you will, please stand um, in honor of our God who gives us his word. <clears throat> Haggai, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, use your word now by the Spirit to convict us, to open up our eyes, to edify us, to build us up, to remind us of your promises that are found in Jesus, uh, in him, uh, in Christ, the one in whom all your promises find their yes. And may you use that to comfort us in our affliction, to give us peace in the midst of our mission, and to give us courage as we face overwhelming odds in the world's eyes. But Father, with you all things are possible. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You guys can have a seat. <clears throat> uh, courage, is, uh, courage is a virtue. 
right? And we, we celebrate courage. We love hearing stories or watching movies or reading novels depicting brave acts of heroism and courage. Uh, we have literal, literally holidays surrounding uh, celebrating men and women of courage, be that Veterans Day or Memorial Day. Many of you here in this room have served in our armed forces, or maybe you are currently serving in some way, police, fire department, EMTs. I mean, fill, fill in the blank. Um, we celebrate men and women of courage. On the flip side of that, so if you have a coin, on one side you have people that are courageous. On the flip side of that, you also have people that are cowards. You know, when a situation arises that is hard or scary or dangerous or costly, you know, these men and women, rather than stay and seek to overcome the obstacle, they, they instead choose to withdraw and hide or flee. When I think of displays of cowardice, the first image that pops into my mind is Corporal Upham from Saving Private Ryan. If you haven't seen the movie, it's like 25 years old. Spoiler alert. I don't really feel bad for you. You can watch it. Um, but as his fellow soldier is being killed by an SS uh, officer in a house, he is, instead of upstairs helping his brother in arms, he's downstairs in the corner crying. He's cower, cowarding, cowering in fear. Rather than going to the aid of his brother in arms, uh, he might get a little redemption in the end, if you've seen the movie, but in those moments where he was needed most, he failed to display courage. And he chose to withdraw rather than engage in the battle. So courage and cowardice. And although those two things uh, manifest themselves obviously outwardly in different ways, I think there are two similarities between courageous people and cowardly people that come to the forefront. First, they, manifest, they both manifest themselves in times of great adversity. You don't know if you're a, a courageous person or a coward until you find yourself in a situation of risk and danger, right? I mean, I can tell you all day that if somebody broke into my house to attack my wife and my two little girls, that I would step in and, and protect them even if it cost me my life. But I don't know if that's true until the situation arises. I hope it's true. But I don't know it truly to be true unless it happens, which I pray it doesn't. Now, we can talk a big game about being courageous people, but our true colors come forward in moments where we are put to the test. So courage and cowardice are both evidenced in times of great adversity. And then the second similarity is this. Many times the display of courage or the display of cowardice is directly tied to your belief in the cause you are advocating. And what I mean by that is that the deeper your devotion goes for a person or a group or a nation, that devotion is directly tied to the amount of ardor you're going to put forward in protecting that person or that group or that nation. If I haphazardly believe in a cause, or if I only advocate for a person or group when they are benefiting me, then when I'm faced with a, a test of my loyalty to those individuals or groups, I will much more easily fold under pressure. When my mind goes more to the risk involved in my defense of that cause or person rather than the value of that cause or person I am defending, I will nine out of 10 times come out on the other side of coward. I just will. In those moments of adversity and trial, uh, we need a cause much bigger than ourselves to give us the courage we need to fulfill the mission. It's the glory of the cause that creates the courage in us. 
And there's one big idea that I kind of want to break down for us this morning. If you leave with nothing else from the sermon this morning, I won't be offended if you leave with this. If you don't leave with this, I'll be offended. No, I'm kidding. Um, But it's this. In order for God's people to complete God's mission, we must draw courage from the promise of God's presence. In order for God's people to complete God's mission, we must draw courage from the promise of God's presence. Now, we're going to break that down a little bit. But when you come to Haggai, the prophet Haggai, two chapters hidden in your Old Testament, the people of God in Haggai chapter 1 are faced with a dire situation. 66 years earlier in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the the agent of God's judgment, the most powerful nation and man in the whole world, they come into Judah and they torch the city of Jerusalem to the ground. They tear it down, destroy it. And included in that destruction is the destruction of the 400-year-old temple of Solomon. Nebuchadnezzar turned this glorious temple of Solomon into a pile of ash and rubble. He took most of the Israelites living in the land. He took them into exile, into Babylon. And the memories of this glorious nation are becoming fainter and fainter with every passing day. And it wasn't long before Babylon is taken over by Persia, King Cyrus of Persia, the next great world power on the scene, who allowed some of the exiles to go back into the land of Jerusalem. So a handful of exiles in 538 BC, they go back under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they go back to begin construction on the temple. And there's a good chance in this first group that go back, you have Haggai, the prophet, Zechariah, the prophet, some other prophets as well that go back with them in 538 BC. And they go back and they lay the foundation of the temple. But once they finish the foundation of the temple, they stop working for 18 years. Not another brick is laid. No work is done. The temple's still in ruins and the God of Israel is still mocked. And it's within that historical context that we find ourselves coming to the book of Haggai. It's almost like we've come again to a, to a Joshua 1 type moment where the previous generation had failed to believe the promises of God and the new generation is now here called on to repent and believe the God they worship and they serve. So let me give you kind of a, a, just a brief overview of these two chapters, kind of 30,000 foot view, and then we're really going to dig into verses one through nine. All right. So a brief overview. Haggai can be broken up into four different oracles, four oracles in these two chapters. The first oracle is from Haggai chapter one, verse one, all the way to Haggai chapter one, verse 15. So chapter one, that's oracle number one, chapter one. And it's this message that's basically an indictment on the people. They've been focusing on building their own kingdoms to the neglect of work to build the kingdom that God was establishing. Look at verse 4 of Haggai chapter 1. The Lord asks a question. He asks, is it a time for for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? It's a good question, an indicting question. And then verse 8 of Haggai chapter 1, God says, as long as the temple's unfinished, the glory of God is being neglected. It's a big deal. God's glory was not important enough for the people of Israel to look beyond building their own personal kingdoms to building the only one that endured, namely the kingdom of God. 
And as a result of this indictment through the prophet and this challenge, this command to pick up the tools and to start work again, the people of Israel in verses 12 through 15, they actually obey. It's kind of a rarity in the Old Testament. The people of Israel actually respond to God and obey, and they do. But they're still fearful, and the work is still hard. The materials are scarce. The people around them and even within them are are antagonistic towards them. Discouragement is all around them. But this is the reality of the context in which the mission is to be carried out. Oracle number two begins at the start of chapter two and runs through verse nine, what we just read. Chapter two, verse one through verse nine. God is reassuring the people, his people of his presence. And this assurance of God's presence is the creator of courage. It's the catalyst of courage. He's calling them to be strong, to do the work of rebuilding the temple. He tells them in verses 7 and 8 that he will provide everything that they need. And then in verse 9, he tells them that the glory of this new temple will far exceed the glory of the previous temple, which is probably really hard for them to believe because the glory of the previous temple was so great. God will give his people peace. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Oracle 3 takes place in verses 10 through 17. God reminds his people why he allowed these specific hard things to come, and it was to turn their hearts back to him. And then Oracle number 4 is verses 20 through 23 of chapter 2, kind of wrapping up the book, where the Lord through Haggai speaks a word to Zerubbabel, who is the governor of Judah, heir to the Davidic throne. He says, hey, I'm going to make you a, like a signet ring to the people. I'm going to put your mark on the people. Now before we jump into our verses for this morning, uh, in order to better understand just how devastating the destruction of the temple would have been to the nation of Israel, we have to to kind of take a step back and, and grasp the significance of what the temple communicated. If you go back to the very first pages of the Bible, to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when God put Adam and Eve into the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, what set apart the Garden of Eden and gave it any value at all were not all the the great things that the Garden of Eden provided, but the, the one distinguishing factor that set the Garden of Eden apart was the fact that God dwelled with his people, that God walked among them, that he communicated with them that he was present with them. And this truth of of God dwelling with his people is also the primary thing being communicated through the construction of the tabernacle. So you get into Exodus, you get into Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There's a lot of talk about the tabernacle, this, this portable, costly place of worship that when the Israelites moved from city to city, they would pack it up and carry it and they set it up in the middle of the camp. That would be where you went to worship the Lord. Now God says in Exodus 25, verse 8, he says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The purpose of the tabernacle is to communicate to all the nations through which Israel was traveling, we worship a God who dwells in our midst. We worship a God who is with us. The Ark of the Covenant would reside there and and the nations would know this is who Israel's God is, that he is with his people and God would get great glory. And then he gets to the temple. Solomon constructs the temple. First Kings chapter 8. It's a glorious temple. Ark of the Covenant's brought into the temple, demonstrated this same truth that God dwells with his people. The glory of God descends down upon the temple. God dwelling with his people. 
And the two primary characteristics, two primary characteristics about God that were meant to be displayed through these things are these two big words that we're going to unpack. God's transcendence and God's eminence. God's transcendence and God's eminence. Start with God's transcendence. God's transcendence means that he is separate from creation and not dependent upon it in any way. Through the tabernacle and the temple's beauty, through the fact that the Ark of the Covenant resided there, through the fact that only one person once a year could enter into the most holy place, the presence of the Lord, and only that person after he had washed and cleansed himself and washed and cleansed himself ritual after ritual after ritual, all those things, all those performances, so to speak, the purpose of them was to display to us that God is transcendent, that he is holy. To use the, the language of Isaiah chapter 6, that he is high and lifted up, that he is exalted, that he is holy, that he is other, that he is authoritatively in control, that he is completely unlike us in holiness, that he sets the terms of worship and living, not us. He does that. But at the same time, at the same time that that's being communicated through these things, the second thing that's communicated is God's eminence. That God is near to his people. That his presence is with his people. That he delights in being with his people. That God is not so far above us that we cannot know him. But he draws near to us. That although he is categorically in a different than us, that he is high above us, yet he still chooses to draw near. So when Israel and the nations see the tabernacle or the temple, they, are, they see God in his glory because they were glorious structures, but at the same time, they see that God is with his people. But with all the, with all the covenant promises that are wrapped up in in God's presence with his people through the temple, right after Solomon builds the temple, he dedicates the temple in 1 Kings chapter 9. He gives a warning to the people. And he says, if you turn away from the Lord, if you go after other gods, lesser gods, then you will be cut off from the land of Israel and this temple will be destroyed. This temple symbolizing God's presence with his people would be torn down. And that is exactly what happened. People of Israel turn their backs on the Lord. They go after false gods. And as a result, they are driven into exile. The temple is destroyed. So when the people of God, whose identity, identity as a people, the core identity of who they are, when that has been torn down, when the presence of God that has been with them has been with them for centuries is taken away and the temple is in ruins, it's not too far-fetched to think some of the thoughts that are going through their minds. Maybe thoughts like, well, God has rejected us. He has left us. We are never going to be a people again. We are a byword. We are a joke among the peoples. We are weak. We are vulnerable. We have no protection. They are characterized by their shame. They are characterized by their guilt. They are defined by the mistakes they made in the past. They feel anything but courageous. They feel abandoned. But lest we forget, the people brought this upon themselves. 
You know, being driven out of their land and having their temple destroyed is a direct consequence of their own sin and rebellion against God. There's no question who's at fault here, but listen, at the same time, we're going to see over the next few minutes, God uses the prophet Haggai to remind his covenant people that even though the consequences for their sin were severe, that God will never abandon his people. Three times in these two chapters, God tells his people that he is with them. And the basis for his presence is rooted in the covenant promises he has made towards his people. And these covenant promises of God's presence, they they find their apex in the New Testament. When Jesus Christ comes on the scene at the beginning of the Gospel of John, and we read in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the word Jesus became flesh, we just sang about it, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When John says that, he is attempting to point us to the one in whom all the temple promises find their fulfillment. In thinking about the promise of Haggai 2.9, we're going to dive into it in a second, that the glory of the new temple will far exceed the glory of the former temple, you can't help but look at Jesus. The temple that all previous temples were pointing to, because John, in chapter 2 of the Gospel of John, he goes on to talk about how Jesus this, goes into this temple, this new temple constructed by man, almost as a picture of God's glory entering into the temple once again. He's coming in the presence of God with his people. And as he enters in, Jesus makes this declaration, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And he's not talking about this physical temple, but he's talking about himself. Jesus Christ, the true temple in which the glory of God dwelled would be like the first temple destroyed by God's enemies for the sins of God's people. But unlike the previous temples that were shadows of Christ, this new temple, namely the body of Jesus Christ, would be raised up again. And it would become the permanent dwelling place of the glory of God, never to be destroyed again. And anyone that wishes to commune with the transcendent God of the universe comes through the imminent presence of Jesus. And then when Christ leaves the earth, this, isn't, this gets more amazing. When Christ leaves the earth, he doesn't leave us temple-less. But he sends his spirit to reside in our bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the apostle Paul talks about how our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God dwelling in us because of Christ. And then Peter goes on in 1 Peter chapter 2, which we're going to come back to in a second. And he ta- he calls us to, tells us that we as believers, we are living stones being built up together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's amazing, right? That is, that is an amazing, just 30,000 foot view of this theme of the temple, the presence of God that runs throughout the scriptures and how real it is even today. But even in spite of that reality, Even in spite of that truth, sometimes in our lives as believers, we are much like the people here in Haggai, or we just need some courage to finish the work of the mission. And our courage is to be found as we remember the promise of God's presence. 
So let's look specifically at verses one through nine now. And I want us to see three ways, three ways that the enemy seeks to rob us of courage. Three things. One, fear the past. Fear of the past. Look at chapter two, verses one through three again. I'm going to read it for us again. Follow along in Haggai chapter two, verses one through three. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Now, there were still some among the builders that had come back that had some recollection of the temple in its previous form before it was destroyed. You know, they would have been children then. I mean, it was years before, decades before. And now they were old men and women. You know, Ezra chapter 3 recounts the events when they finished laying the foundation. There were some of the younger crowd that were celebrating and rejoicing. But then in Ezra chapter 3, verse 12, he writes, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. They wept because they remembered the glory of the former temple and how this was just a shadow of what used to be. You know, I think that some of their weeping was simply remembering the glory of the former temple. But I also think that some of their weeping was mourning over the sins of their fathers and their father's fathers. The priests and the Levites here that are weeping in Ezra chapter 3, they know the word of the Lord. It was their job to teach the people the word of the Lord. They knew the destruction of the temple was in direct relation to their covenant disobedience. They knew that they had sinned and and what they had received was a just punishment from the Lord. So when the Lord through Haggai speaks to this people preparing to build a new temple and he draws their attention to the rubble of the former temple, he is once again reminding them not to repeat the mistakes of their past. He doesn't deny the reality of the current situation. He doesn't try to put a a spiritual cliche over the devastation that is right before them. It It is bad news. They're in a bad situation. There's an acknowledgement of the reality of that. But he's challenging them not to let the mistakes of the past define them as they seek to walk in obedience and repentance in the present. It's a new day for the people of God. And they need the courage to believe God is present with them that their fathers just simply did not possess. You know, that temptation to, uh, to let our temptation or to let our mis- past mistakes define our present realities, I mean, that's still alive and well today, am I right? Many of you sitting here, maybe you have been paralyzed in your kingdom building usefulness for years because you think because of something you did years ago, decades ago, maybe even last night, defines you now. That you are not worthy to receive God's love because of some kind of past mistake, past sin. That if anybody knew about your past or present sin, you'd be rejected by those around you. You would you would be cast off by your church body, your church home. And so the self-imposed penance you pay 
in your stance before the Lord is you will choose to bear the cross of the weight of past mistakes, even though that weight is crushing you on a daily basis. You need the courage to rest in the forgiveness that has been bought at the cross of Jesus. You need the courage to come out of the dark and into the light, knowing the consequences will be real, but the promises of God are still true. Listen, if there is anyone who should understand the depths of brokenness more than anyone else, it is Christians. We should be more aware of our flaws and our shortcomings because we know the source of those flaws and shortcomings and we have a solution to heal us from those flaws and those shortcomings. There is no reason anyone in this church, anyone at Johnson Ferry in Marietta, Georgia, anyone at all should hide behind the shame and the guilt of past sin. Because we as believers know that past sin was put on the cross of Christ. It's been paid for. The penalty for that's been paid for. The presence of that is being worked out. Uh, The penalty for that's been paid for. The presence of that's being worked out now. And the power and presence will be done away one day when we see Christ. I pray for many of you here that are harboring past or present sin that you just bring it into the light. Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, wrote a book called Life Together. If you knew me, it's book, his book Life Together is probably, apart from the Bible, it's probably the most influential book that I've ever read in my own personal spiritual life. And he said this, he said, he or she who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. You are utterly alone. But look around, you are surrounded by broken people that have the hope of the gospel, that you're being made new on a daily basis. Don't let the enemy rob you of freedom and joy to be had in Jesus. Christ bore the weight of your sin for your past mistakes. Yes, as I said before, the consequences are real, but your value has been fixed in the eyes of your God, of my God, because of Jesus Christ. So the first way the enemy tries to rob us of courage is fear of the past. The second way he does this is discouragement in the present. Discouragement in the present. When the people of Israel, they gaze at the stony rubble of of this former temple, they're not only challenged to not be defined by their past mistakes, but they're, let's keep, but let's keep reading in verse four of chapter two, verses four and five. But now take courage, Zerubbabel declares the Lord, take courage also Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. The work before them was immense. It would take years to complete. It would be hard. It would be tedious. It would be tiresome. It would be frustrating. It would be slow. Very, very few short-term results being produced in the work of building the temple. 
The weightiness of each stone being removed is a reminder to the people of the weightiness of their sin that caused this in the first place. And not only that, but as they're building, they would remember the glory days of Israel and know that their work would not even compare to that. And the discouragement that tempted to rob the Israelites in the construction of this second temple also is a temptation for us in our work in new temple building, right? New covenant temple building. You know, right before Jesus left this earth in Matthew chapter 28, he commanded his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. I'm sure you've talked about that a lot the last few weeks going through this sermon series, the Great Commission. That was 2,000 years ago. And the work is still not done. 2,000 years. And there's still work to do. The work of making disciples of all nations is hard. It's costly. It's tedious. Produces very little short-term results. It's tiresome. It's risky. Sometimes it's flat-out dangerous. Sometimes it may cost you your life. But it's the mission we have been given. And we need the courage to complete it. And I really believe that when Israel gazed upon these stacked stones of past sins, this rubble that they're removing to rebuild this temple, I really believe that the people of God, as they're doing that, are also reminded of the stacked stones of God's promises. And what I mean by that is, is that all throughout the Old Testament, when God would act in a profound way or make a profound promise, the people of Israel would stack stones as a, rem- as a memorial to tell the future generations coming after them, hey, see these stones? This is what God did. This is the promise he made. This is the great act of deliverance that he did for his people. And they would worship. And many times these stacked stones were in remembrance of, of his covenant with his people, his love for his people. I think it's amazing, and I mentioned this before in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, where Peter calls believers living stones. Living stones being built into a spiritual house with Christ as the cornerstone. Stacked stones. Stone memorials in the Old Testament were reminders of God's promises to his people, but they're silent reminders. In the New Testament, as living stones, we are reminders to one another of God's promises. We build each other up through the promises of God as living stones, speaking and singing and praying those promises over one another. That's why Hebrews uh, 10, 24 and 25, which we've t- I'm sure during COVID season we have talked about a lot, it says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day's drawing near. We need to speak God's truth over each other. Remind one another, hey, this world stinks, but the world to come is greater. It's coming. We are living stones stacked together, verbally reminding one another of God's faithfulness to us. In verse 5, God reminds the people here of this covenant he made with them while they were in Egypt. This covenant where he established himself as their God and his people and they his people by directing, by directing their attention to the covenant, the people building would be reminded that God would continue to guide them as he had since Egypt. He would continue to lead them through 
in the days to come. His presence undergirded the strength of their hands. And the same is true with us, church. What do you think sustained men like William Carey to go into India and not see a convert for seven years? His own wife is telling him to come home, come home, come home. They're not going to listen to you. Come home, come home. What do you think sustained him there to continue to preach the gospel and not see any fruit at all for seven years? What do you think propelled men like David Brainerd to go into hostile tribes of Native Americans and proclaim the gospel, the saving death and resurrection of Jesus to the point where he died for it? What do you think constrained Elizabeth Elliot to stay in Ecuador sharing the gospel with the very people that murdered her husband? If all of these saints of old, if all they had was a mission, if all they had was a command, it would not be enough. It would not be enough. You know, Matthew 28, 19, if all we had was Matthew 28, 19, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If all we had was that, it would not be enough to sustain us. But we have verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. The promise of God's presence undergirding the mission that God is giving to his people. Fear and discouragement are two new covenant temple building killers. But I think the third and final thief of courage that we see in the text can be the most lethal. And it's forgetfulness of the future. Forgetfulness of the future. Look at verse 9 one more time. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, declares the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You know, we mentioned earlier that, um, that Christ is the fulfillment of all these temple promises, of all the temple was intended to be, and that is true. And that we as his people are now temples of the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit resides in us through Christ, giving us new hearts that are now filled with the Spirit. That is true. But as with all these matters of, of prophecy, it's like, a, it's like an onion. You kind of just peel away, right? There's just layers upon layers upon layers of it. And you keep peeling these layers away, and you realize that as you go throughout the Scriptures, that there is coming a day, according to Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, where there will be no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And here it is. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, plural, the ethnos, the people groups. Every tribe, tongue, language, and people will be represented around the throne of God. 
And may it be by God's grace that he uses Mauberly, that he uses Johnson Ferry to be a catalyst to bring some of those nations into the fold. But we need the courage. We need the courage to do it. So I pray today, Mauberly, that you bank, that you look to the character of God who gives promises to us as his people. And may that strengthen you as you seek to make a dent in the world for the sake of the glory of Christ and the discipleship of all nations. Let me pray for us. Father, your promises reflect your heart. We know a lot about you through the promises you make. We thank you, O oh God, that you are not a God who leaves us when we are unfaithful, that you're not a God who abandons us when we make mistakes, that you're not a God who puts us into the mission without giving us any semblance of your presence. But you are a God who has not only given the commands for us to go, but have also given us the promise of what we need to fulfill that mission. That you're with us. You're with us from a church standpoint and making disciples, but you're also with us individually. As fear and discouragement and forgetfulness tend to creep into our lives as believers, Father, may we be reminded that you are with us, that you never leave us, that you never forsake us, that you walk with us, that you lead us, that you guide us, that when we were dead in our sin, you came to us in Christ and you made a way for us. Instead of asking us to come up to you in our own power, you descended to us. You entered into our mess of a world to save us and redeem us and to give us a hope and a future. There are a lot of hard things people are walking through in this room right now. But Father, remind them that they are not alone. That your promises 2,000 years ago are still your promises today because you never change. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Fuel Mauberly in the mission you have laid out for them. And bring yourself great glory through them. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.